Uh, and at the end, I do want to talk about something that Julian said about the sort of pessimism uh, concerning the future, especially with respect to Stephen Pinker's books, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which tends to show that there's a decline in violence over the last 10,000 years, and to show why that's true for interpersonal violence, but it's not true uh, for group violence, if I can get to that. So let me... Uh, Start. So this is a collaborative projects that have been going on for years. The main collaborators are uh, Jeremy Ingus, who's a psychologist, social psychologist. Robert Axelrod, who's a political scientist, you know, tit for tat guy, game theory, evolutionary psychologist, uh, political scientist. Douglas Medine, he's a cognitive psychologist. Joseph Henrik, he's one of the, the one who did the ultimatum game over 17 different societies. Uh, he's an anthropologist and behavioral economist in our own Zion former student of mine who is now a professor at uh, UBC and has done fascinating work most likely in science magazine showing that um, people who think analytically tend to think less religiously and also that autistics tend not to be able to think terribly religiously, which actually is very interesting for things like me theory. The general overriding theme that drives my work in thinking is what I would call the power of absurdity. And that is humans strive for lasting intellectual and emotional bonding with anonymous others and make their greatest exertions in killing and dying, not to preserve their own lives or to defend their families and friends, but for the sake of an idea, an abstract idea, a transcendent moral conception of who we are. Now, in The Descent of Man, Darwin cast it as the virtue of morality, the spirit of patriotism, fidelity, obedience, courage, and sympathy, with which winning groups are better endowed in history's spiral and competition for survival and dominance. And across cultures, primary group identity is often bound by sacred values, often in the form of religious beliefs and transcendental ideologies, which leads some groups to triumph over others because of a non-rational commitment. Although there may be a long-term evolutionary rationality in terms of people's self-interests, the way they act with respect to the immediate future, these are non-rational. They don't discount the future, for example. And this drives, these kinds of commitments, drive actions independently or all out of proportion to prospects of success. So, our studies, the things I'm going to talk about, suggest that costly and seemingly arbitrary ritual commitments to apparently absurd beliefs actually deepens trust, galvanizes group solidarity for common defense, and blinds people to exit strategies. By contrast, fully reasoned social contracts that regulate individual interests to share costs and benefits of cooperation can be more liable to collapse. If you think there's a better idea down the line than going by backwards induction, you're more likely to defect in the next to the last move and back on up. People who believe in transcendental ideas and ideologies aren't likely to defect at all. Now, in the origins of the species, Darwin promoted adaptations only for the individual's use in the struggle to gain resources or produce offspring. Good for itself, but never for the exclusive good of others. If we help little kids or help an old lady or an old man cross the street, uh, that's because we want to feel better our, about ourselves or that ultimately we believe in some kind of quid pro quo reciprocity. These kinds of golden rule notions of fairness that describe uh, mundane reality fit very well within the notion of sort of self-interest 
And most, over the last decade, well actually over the last, a little more than the last decade, almost all the work on morality has dealt with these golden rule principles of fairness and society as a sort of mutualist distribution of rewards uh, and risks in cooperation. And what I'm going to try to argue is that none of this, very little of this research, is relevant to really understanding conflict. And that the kinds of moral ideas I'm talking about, sort of transcendent moral ideas, go quite behind these mundane notions of fairness and distributions of risks and rewards. So that you know the trolleyology uh, industry doesn't really have much to say. And we do it. We do trolley problems. By the way, we find fascinating things like Iranian clerics make no distinctions in these trolley games. But I don't think it's going to give us much insight into the kinds of things I want to talk about, which are very similar to the kinds of things Aaron's talked about, that is intractable conflicts. So the issue here is whether insights into people's everyday moral sense of equality and mutual advantage can illuminate transcendent moral percepts critical to the competitive creation of cultures. Now, Darwin himself, in The Origin of the Species, talked mostly about these golden rule principles, tit for tat, quid pro quo, things like that. But by the time he wrote The Descent of Man, he was puzzled, especially by notions of bravery and martyrdom. And he asked himself, why is it that in some societies people are heroes? There are brave people. Even if it's very likely, in fact most likely, they will lose their lives. And so will their families and friends. And although he had no notion of inclusive fitness, he in a a sense already anticipated the idea that there would be no general status accrued to his family or or to his genes that the person was most likely to die. Yet, if that person irrationally commits to heroic actions, the society as a whole is more likely to survive and triumph in the end. And that's what he referred to as morality. And that is not something, I think, that's dealt with mostly in the moral literature we've seen over the past decade or so. Now, Alfred Russell Wallace, the co-discoverer of the theory of evolution, said, sure, you know, I agree entirely. But he argued that these special features of morality, these transcendent features like music or mathematics, are actually something that we don't share with our animal progenitors and comes from some sort of spiritual essence that human beings have. And of course, given Darwin's empirical bent of mind, he was sort of flabbergasted by that response and wrote back to uh, Wallace, I hope you have not murdered too completely your own child and my own because he wanted an empirical interpretation of why that was, in fact, the case. But he produced no causal account of how group love might have emerged. So, and he dealt very little with religion other than to say it's part of this whole gestalt of transcendental ideologies. Let me say at the outset that I'm going to discuss religion in particular, and I'll give a sort of definition of it as... uh, a costly commitment to uh, supernatural entities that create minimally counterintuitive worlds that manage our existential anxieties or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) But I consider that, especially since the advent of universal religions, namely the sort of merging of Judaism and and Greek philosophy in Christianity and Islam, uh, religions that have sort of gone out to conquer the world have been salvational religions, and when the French Revolution brought it down to earth during the Enlightenment, it created a secular version of these universal religions, the isms, 
communism, fascism, democratic liberalism, all are secular variants of these salvational ideologies. And all, of course, are driven by transcendental principles that have no logical basis in anything. Uh, they're empirically inscrutable and logically incoherent, usually. And I'll give you just a, an example, human rights. Okay? All of a sudden, in the middle of the 18th century, a bunch of intellectuals in England and the United States and France, a guy named Cesare Beccaria in Italy, said that there should be no more torture because people should have control of their own bodies and they're endowed by providence or nature with inalienable rights like life, liberty, equality, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, nothing could be crazier, right? Humans have existed corporally as humans for 200,000 years, more or less, and for 99.99% of that time, cannibalism, infanticide, slavery, oppression of my women and minorities have been the general case for human beings. And then suddenly, you know, in 1750, someone comes up with the idea that this is all wrong. So it was engineered. I mean, it's not in our genes that we have equality and things like that, but it's been quite successful. And it's been successful because it's driven by a non-rational, uh, transcendental idea. And going back to the power of absurdity, I think that power is what really drove humans out of the caves and gave rise to civilizations, and is mostly responsible for how the world is structured uh, today. So evolutionary dilemmas about religion. So it explains, you have to try to explain why religious beliefs and devotion are both universal and variable across cultures. Why religion is so often associated with both large-scale cooperation and enduring group conflict. Now, I'm not going to go through the, all the all the things that I'm going to talk about or that I should talk about. But I'll just give you some general aspects uh, that characterize all known religions and probably all possible religions. One is that religious beliefs are counterintuitive. Just take the very simple notion of an all-seeing, all-powerful, sentient deity that has no body. Right? If people literally believe that, they could not learn language. Okay, there's no way you can build the natural constraints, semantic constraints on language so that you can learn words. In no language could you believe that to be empirically the case. Yet people believe it in some sense. I won't go into exactly how people believe it. But again, it's logically absurd. It's absurd analytically, and it's empirically inscrutable. As Thomas Hobbes says, such a being is incomprehensible, literally incomprehensible but that's what makes it interesting. So core religious beliefs, now they're incomprehensible and absurd, but in a very particular way. <coughs> they actually minimally violate our expectations of what the world is like. And we do lots of experiments, and there's a whole industry of experiments now since we started doing this, uh, where we can actually show that there are sort of ontological categories that, that define human semantics, like person, animal, plant, and substance, and that you can change just one cell, for example, changing the cell uh, in psychology and substance, the folk psychology, plus folk psychology and substance, you, you can get a, a statue, uh, a, a crystal ball that can talk to you, or uh, say an unthinking zombie that is an uh, animate uh, human-like creature without a brain, both of which again are semantically impossible, semantically impossible, but by switching that one thing you create an evocative world that's very interesting. It's a metaphorical world, and it can only be interpreted like a metaphor. That is, you can only give it a concrete interpretation in context. 
by making it non-ridiculous. Let me give you an example. I know we have religious folk in here, but I've had students go out around the world, uh, India, United States, testing Muslims, priests, rabbis, ordinary people, and we give them a simple problem like this. Suppose Johnny is caught in a stream with his foot under a rock in Wisconsin, and the river is rising, and he prays to God to save him. What does God do? At the exact same time, little Mary is in Australia. She's caught, her foot is caught under a railroad tie. The train is coming. She prays to God. What will God do, knowing that both Mary and Johnny are praying to him for salvation? Now, no one says, wham, bang, God will do it. They ask, does Johnny or Mary have other sisters and brothers? How fast is the train coming? How fast is the river rising? And the reason is, you cannot literally, literally, it is impossible to conceptually comprehend how such a thing might actually causally be done. And so human minds just naturally look for causal explanations. So you can give apparently outlandish and absurd ideas a context-sensitive and, if possible, a causal explanation. We, again, we do examples where we sort of make minimally counterintuitive ideas and maximally counterintuitive ideas. And what we show is that over time, those stories that have minimally counterintuitive, like miracles involved, are those that are likely to be remembered both in the short term and in the longer term, no matter what culture it is. I mean, this is for the Yucatec Maya, for example. So if you look at the Bible or the Quran or the Popeve or any of these things, you find that the number of actual, the kinds of actual things that violate our intuitions, that are these miraculous kinds of absurd and outlandish things, are actually very few. But they're enough to carry on everything else. That is, you use your natural inferences. You know that, for example, Daniel can go through, uh, a Gabriel can go through brick walls, right, or a dungeon uh, to talk to Daniel, or God can move a mountain. You don't then have to ask, can God move a basketball? Right? That, your natural inference thing will do. So all you need is a very few kinds of pointers, and that'll carry on the rest of the religious system. And of course, these stories are advantageous in memory, which means in the competition for ideas across culture and time, those people who expound <coughs> minimally counterintuitive ideas like this and stories, those kinds of things are more likely to survive over time and be culturally transmitted. Now, what I want to say is there's nothing in religion, absolutely nothing, that has any specific evolutionary history or signature that I know of. They're all the products of mundane beliefs, but used in a very specific sort of way. Now, why do we see faces in the clouds and voices in the wind? And, in fact, why is an idea, conceptually, cognitively, of God even possible? Well, one reason is we have a very hyperactive agency detector. I mean, if you do fMRI studies or you even do regular cognitive studies in theory of mind, notice that human beings see agents everywhere. Well, there's an evolution, a good evolutionary story for that. I mean, we should be skeptical about evolutionary stories because there are always a dime a dozen. This is a pretty good one. So, human beings in the late Pleistocene became their own worst predators. Okay, they pretty much uh, were able to dominate all the other predators, but human beings are particularly devious predators. Uh, we know this from you know early human um, archaeological sites or from headhunters and cannibals and things like that. 
So the default for survival for human beings, uh, say even 70,000 years ago, was to be able to anticipate the possibility of a devious human being out to get them or their children. So what does that mean? That means that you must be able to detect intelligent agents under severe conditions of uncertainty and lack of knowledge. And so what happens is when we hear, say, a noise, just a simple noise, or a movement, or we see an ill-defined shape, we immediately project agency on it. And you can do these little experiments with yourself, just do three dots and all of a sudden you'll make a face and things like that. You can't help it. Your mind locks into it like that. And it's only after a few milliseconds that you calm down. I mean, none of you can actually stop this from happening, no matter how hard you try. So you will always be, in a sense, surprised and frightened by a sudden noise, and you will always project it as an agent. Well, of course, from there to the notion that there's some bodiless supernatural agency at least becomes a conceptual possibility. Another, um, oh, well, we see it all the time. You know, people see me. Mother Teresa in a, in a, in a cinnamon bun that was actually a, or uh, a Gabriel, Gabriel and an ice cream that melted, or this is the devil in the Twin Towers, which was the front page, the devil strikes uh, the Twin Towers and things like that. Okay. So here's a very interesting thing. Why are we willing to sacrifice, why are human beings willing to sacrifice for apparently absurd beliefs? Now we need, we know why we need logical beliefs and empirically coherent beliefs to navigate the world. We couldn't cross the street without them, right? And we die. And we couldn't reproduce and all the kinds of things that, you, that creatures do. So we have logical beliefs and we have empirically coherent beliefs. But why do we have these crazy, I mean from a cognitive, I'm not making sort of any moral judgment here. Why do we have these sort of crazy beliefs, these absurd beliefs? And why are they so much more powerful for our societies? And again, let me revert back to the idea of transcendental ideologies like human rights. Why are they so much more powerful than uh, regular, normal, logically coherent beliefs and social contracts and things like that? Think of Abraham. Think of about his willingness to sacrifice his own life for his beloved son who's waited 70 years for. And then he hears an inner voice and it goes out to slit his son's throat. Well, luckily Gabriel comes and grabs his arm and he doesn't slit his son's throat. Now, what happens with this guy? Is he arrested as an attempted murderer or a child molester or something like that or a nutcase? No, he becomes the greatest cultural hero in the history of the world. Now, why does that happen? We have to ask ourselves, it's a little bizarre. If we literally believed in some of the things in our religions, for example, the mass, uh, that um, the wine is actually empirically the blood of Christ, of course, we'd be sort of nut, nutcases or we take the wafer... Uh, we'd be sort of semi-cannibals. We actually treat them in quite different registers. People want to ask me how exactly we do it. We've got lots of experiments on it. Um, one of the things these minimally counterintuitive worlds are, that these worlds that are just a little bit different than our real world, that violate these innate constraints on semantic structures, is that they help us solve existential anxieties. You know, we have lots of problems because we're so smart. Uh, one is death, right? We're the only creatures who really recognize the possibility of death. And the inductive evidence for death is everyone will die is overwhelming. All right? No known exceptions. Yet, why do people believe 
at least the soul will live on. How can they possibly believe such a crazy thing? Or how can people believe the weak shall inherit the earth? I mean, nothing in the, in the biology of this planet gives any indication that the weak will inherit the earth. Okay? Or why do we believe that even after an accident occurred, if we pray to God, that we can change the causal course of events like changing, like a stage manager in a theater changing the structure of a play? I mean, these are really crazy ideas, yet people are committed to them even more than they are committed to logical and empirical beliefs. Again, that's a puzzle. Why do we even need them at all? I mean, wouldn't it be just good enough to be able to navigate the world logically and empirically without having to deal with these kinds of things or the contradiction, the apparent contradiction that some of us are here today to even discuss about? Well, I think one of the things that religious beliefs do now, by religious beliefs, again, I look at it as a sort of evolutionary landscape. I mean, we have these ordinary cognitive means, these hyperactive agency detectors, uh, sort of um, out of control theory of mind, um, this ability to evoke uh, sort of semantic contradictions. And as we walk through our natural space, our evolutionary space, we combine certain of these things in very peculiar ways to form religions. But religions have no definite boundaries. There is no such thing as religion, right? There's no innate basis for religion. There's no general biological adaptation for religion. We have phenomena that are more or less religious. Everything from sort of Michigan football games, mass you know, hysteria, to uh, transcendental ideologies like human rights or civil rights or jihadism or Nazism, those kinds of things are quasi-religious. But the core basically usually involves some supernatural element. But here's the interesting thing. Almost all cognitive theories of religion up to about five years ago couldn't distinguish between Mickey Mouse and God. Okay? Remember what I talked about, these counterintuitive worlds, like the world of Mickey Mouse, where you have a... Uh, an animal being able to think, okay? We know that that's not true, and yet we like to believe it. It's exciting, it's memorized. That's why you like Mickey Mouse or something like that. And in fact, if you look at the Northwest Coast Indians, if I don't know if any of you are familiar with the, with the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, they were actually um, deep, deeply important parts of the religion of the Cowlitz Indians. And then it was taken over by Warner Brothers, and sort of ridiculize, ridiculous, if there's even a word like that, <laughs> uh, into uh, cartoons. But the, the, the cognitive structure is exactly the same. Okay? But why are people willing to die for you know, Moses' miracles or belief in or Mohammed's, but not for Mickey Mouse? Although they would have been willing to die for Wiley Coyote, but that was only Kelly's. So one of the interesting things that accompany, before I get to why religion does this, I think, one of the interesting things that someone brought up is music. There's no religion, none, known, that doesn't use music as a method of communion. Even the Al-Qaeda, which banned all instruments, used a cappella chants. Music is an extremely strong binding phenomenon. There are reasons for it that are completely independent of religion, but religions take hold of it. Another are expressions of primate dominance. Okay? There's no, there are no religions that do not use general primate expressions of submission, like this, 
For example, this bears your throat and your chest, which is a standard, uh, for actually for all social mammals, a standard uh, way of showing submission, that your willingness to put yourself at risk by bearing that part of your body, which is most exposed, also bowing and prostration. And so we find all religions also use these things to demonstrate submission to a higher authority. In fact, Islam itself, of course, means submission. And all religions are based on the premise that you must be able to sublimate your own individual genetic desires, that of your family and your friends, close friends, for the general body politic. And that is the basis of all religions that we know. It is a way of building societies that are larger than your close genetic group. And that's where I want to go to today. Oh, I also want to that religions always involve costly rituals. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. So remember, we've always, it, it has, it's, it's defined sort of by outlandish beliefs, but accompanying these outlandish beliefs, what makes them believable are rituals that have no relationship to one another, elements that have no logical or empirical relationship to one another in everyday life. They're as crazy as the beliefs themselves. Yet, the more you make a costly commitment to them, the more expensive they are, the more you're willing to risk they are, the stronger people believe in them. Now, if you, want, if you think about how human beings learn, they learn empirical beliefs, usually through either authority or through inductive principles, and they learn logical beliefs, okay, through deductive principles. But how do they learn religious beliefs? Well, it's very similar to the way, for example, kids learn to eat things they they really suspicious about. You know, mommy pulls, puts out the escargot and the blue chop from France, right? The, the escargot and the roquefort, and the kid looks at it, smells it. <laughs> but then if mommy takes it and eats it, that is a display of caustic commitment. Mommy, who I love and trust, is willing to eat this disgusting stuff, so I'll be willing to try it and believe in it. And that's what our leaders do and our models and our experts and that's the way, in fact, humans are evolved to learn things that they can't possibly understand empirically in so short a time. That's the way most cultural learning works. Ratcheting up, of course, is these costly commitments. The, sh the costlier it is, the more likely people are to believe in these outlandish ideas. And in fact, there's overwhelming studies. For example, if you take the Ethnographic Atlas, which is... Uh, about 1,300 societies reduced to 186 types, you find that um, those societies that have more conflict uh, are those societies that have these stronger rituals, genital mutilation, scarification, all sorts of uh, um, rites of passage things. Uh, and we find that those are the groups that need to defend themselves the most, more often and must blind their members to exit strategies. That's very important. That is, if the other side can offer you a better deal or can entice your members away, then you lose. But if the other members can't even conceive of the possibility of leaving their group, then that group has a much better chance of surviving as a corporate entity. Well, we've done this. Um, <coughs> Well, we find the most successful, well, for example, the Navajo are the most successful survivors of Native American groups, and they spend one-third of their productive time on priestly rituals. So again, 
you know, I hear sort of new atheists say how ridiculous and crazy and nonsense are these, but it's actually these people who are most successful, for example, in war and peace. They're the groups most likely to survive uh, over time. So we find if we look at um, ritual communes, communes in the 19th century, we find that in terms of behaviors like constraints on the consumption of alcohol, on infidelity, things like that, religious communities have much stronger constraints, usually in order of two to one, and they are much more likely to survive over time than non-religious communities. Now here's the big puzzle, cooperative groups. How can large-scale cooperation exist among strangers of genetically unrelated individuals? So here's a very interesting thing. 200,000 years ago, humans are basically completely split from Neanderthals. But Neanderthals are running around Eurasia. They're all over the place. Homo erectus is everywhere. They're even next door to me in France 500,000 years ago. Where are human beings? They're stuck in southern and eastern Africa. Not only that, 70,000 years ago, their population dwindles to 2,000 souls. Again, while Neanderthals and Homo erectus are all over the planet, then wham! they're on the moon. Now again, how does that happen? Humans are the weakest of all these primates. I mean, they're weak. Our jaws are extremely weak. I mean, even though we have Olympics and things like that, our muscles are terrible. We have pretty good endurance, but basically in terms of physical strength and ability to resist the elements, we are really, really, really very poor. But two things happen, probably. One, the language faculty kicked in either as a sudden mutation or became public in some interesting way, and that allowed for a sort of computational explosion in terms of our ability to put together uh, conceptual symbols. And the second was we learned to build social groups and to have others sacrifice themselves for us, even though they weren't uh, genetically related. And this process increased in time, because in the Eurasian Peninsula, where most of this grew into civilizations, what we have is human groups all of a sudden moving. They didn't in Africa because of climatic conditions, but in Eurasia, they began moving into resource-rich environments and competing with one another. And the way they survived was becoming larger and larger. But how do you become larger and larger? How do you hold the group together? Well, kin altruism won't do it, right? Reciprocal altruism, that won't do it either. Reputation, which is the other big thing, that won't do it because the larger the end, the more people are involved, the more undependable reputation is. It's sort of a function of one over n, the larger the n, the less likely reputation is a good uh, signal. So how do you do it? How do you keep these large groups together? They're the only things that are going to actually win out in this competition. And then there's another problem with it. That is, the larger the group is, the more likely it's going to internally fissure. Because again, you don't have these genetic bonds or even these neighborhood or tribal bonds to bond yourself. So it can be harder to enforce moral norms and punish free riders on the public good. And this can in turn make societies less cohesive, less able to compete with other societies. So what happens? We invent, minds invent, moral deities, or moral deities make known themselves to human mind. And what we find is that, again, this is a, a view of uh, 1,300 societies collapsed 186,000 times. Moralizing gods that have huge powers increase 
as society becomes larger and more complex. And the archaeological evidence for this, and of course they make even more costly and crazy sacrifices, huge pyramids sacrificing thousands of people, giant things, the Maya would destroy their cities uh, periodically. And the archaeological evidence, whether it's Mesoamerica or uh, um, um, what is what is the, in the Middle East called? Uh, Mesopotamia. <laughs> whether it's Mesopotamia is exactly the same. You find this steady increase and also the steady uh, widening of the powers of these moralizing gods who tell people what they should and shouldn't do. This isn't the, the case in New Guinea or in the Amazon, where the gods are very much like people. They're mostly dead people. Ancestral people happen to stick around, but they don't have the kinds of powers that our, moral, our moralizing gods do. And of course, we do lab experiments, we monitor people, we prime people with belief in the supernatural, uh, or even belief in death and the supernatural, and it, it, it leads to increased uh, generosity towards ephemeral interactants, interactants in the ultimatum and dictator games in those 17 societies. If you look at the stats, you'll see that those people who believe in some universal religion, who first who believe in some religion, are more likely to treat uh, ephemeral interactors' actions fairly, but those who believe in world religions are even more likely to treat interactors fairly. Okay, again, we then, so here's, here's the case. So, so, so groups are competing, and as they compete, they build these sort of elaborate religious let's call them ideologies for now, religious, ritual, ideological systems. Systems is too big a word, sort of stuff. And um, you find that the beliefs become more and more outlandish as far as the other groups are concerned. They become more and more proprietary. And why is that the case? Because you need them to reliably identify strangers who could be cooperators. So the symbols themselves have to be really uninterpretable by other people, almost like scars across their heads. And they are increasingly uninterpretable by the outside groups. So what you have is these larger and larger groups are building more and more elaborate, outlandish, and costly ritual systems and ideological systems. And at the same time, they're increasing their distance from all the other groups. And we find, for example, very simple kinds of things will do this. Among the, the Hebrews, the ancient Hebrews, they were only one of about 200, 300 tribes that were moving in and out of the Middle East at the time, about 3,000 years ago. And they, in the 7th century BC, codify a set of really nutty principles or kosher laws. I know people say, for example, that eating pork, not eating pork, had some functional, that's not, this just isn't the case or it could be very derivatively the case. But the kosher laws are really based on sort of categorical cognitive distinctions or belief in the Sabbath, right? The worst crime in ancient Israel was to violate the Sabbath. It was met by immediate death. Now, no one really does that anymore. It kills you for not obeying the Sabbath or the kosher laws, but that was the case, for example, in the Josiah. Why? Why? Because the ancient Hebrews were linguistically and physically indistinguishable from all of the other groups around them. But these crazy notions, rituals, absolutely distinguish them and, and, and continue to do so up till today. 
Australian Aboriginal groups who have been around Australia for 55,000 years. They were part of the first migrations out of Africa. Okay? Contiguous groups that we know have been there for thousands of years, and yet they've been warring on each other for thousands of years. How do they even distinguish one another? Well, it's an arbitrary distinction in terms of totemic animals and plants. This group believes this species. Again, they have the same cognitive system. They're actually seeing the same species of plants and animals, but they're arbitrarily treating this animal as different from the other animal. And that is an absolute indicator of a reliable cooperator. So, but now we have a dilemma. We are increasingly cooperation among larger and larger groups, bringing in people, but also increasing distrust and distance with outlying groups. And that's pretty much the situation we've come to today. We've developed these universal religions, and these universal religions are all-encompassing. They can bring in people from everywhere, and they have been extremely successful. How did the early Christianity dominate the Roman Empire? It wasn't common because Constantine converted. By a natural growth of 4% of a year be between 150 AD to when Constantine converted, they, they became the majority population of the Roman Empire by the time Constantine converted. And how did they do it? Well, after the Second Jewish Revolt, and the Jews were basically, most, most Jewish populations were expelled from Palestine, Christians lived on the periphery throughout the Jewish diaspora. But they started taking care of the minority populations of the Roman Empire. Women, slaves, and then when plague struck, the Christians were the only ones who went out of their community to tend the Romans who were dying in the streets. The Romans would dump their relatives and run away. But the Christians, just by giving water, would increase the prospects of survival by 50%, but at the risk of their own lives. So they were making this costly demonstration of commitment. The other groups were looking at them and coming to them in mass. This is what happened in Rwanda during the genocide. During the genocide, none of the secular NGOs and none of the Christian groups, this is the most Christian of all African nations, and the UN certainly didn't do anything, but the Muslim community mobilized. The Muslim community mobilized to save the... the um, to save, to save the different Christian groups, that is the Hutsis and the Tutsis who were at war with another, as well as those who believed in no God. And that is the reason that Rwanda has the fastest growing Muslim population today and is still increasing uh, quite rapidly. So these groups have developed, and it depends on the context, ways for incorporating more and more people, and that's why they've been slowly so successful. If you look at the movement of the evangelical movement across the world, the Christian evangelical movement, which is now more than 25% of U.S. society, and which is expanding over across Asia and Africa, even 10% in Morocco is now Christian evangelical. How can they do this even in the face of adversity? Well, they require quite costly ritual commitments to chastity, fidelity, no alcohol, giving over a third of your wealth to the church. Muslim fundamentalist movements are increasing just as rapidly uh, across, across much of Africa. Again, mostly through peaceful trading networks, mostly through peaceful trading networks and ritual commitment. So, what do we have? We have Religion is both the devil and the angel of history. 
It is the thing that made large-scale cooperation possible, that got us out of the caves, that led to the rise of civilizations, and in its secular salvational manifestations, drives the ideologies that drives our modern world today. Yet, it has also led to, or at least exacerbated, uh, increasingly large-scale conflicts. So who are religion's truest disciples? Are they like bin Laden, or are they like the Mahatma? So what about religion and war? Religious beliefs and sacred values facilitate both large-scale cooperation and enduring group conflict. For example, the nonviolent civil rights movement in the United States. It was started and carried through by people who believed it was a sin to enslave, and it was completely motivated by the church. It was only in the 1950s and 60s, very late in its development, about 80 years later in its development, that it started bringing in Ivy League academics uh, in support. But it was a religiously based movement. The Al-Qaeda movement, what other people may see, whatever economic and political and social reasons they may be for, it is an intensely religious movement. And it is built on the notions of costly sacrifice and willingness to commit. I know, I, 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 I deal with Al-Qaeda guys. I've been out in the field with them and those are the people I study. That's another story. So what about the claim by the so-called new atheists? That I'm an atheist myself, so, but I'm sort of embarrassed by these guys. What is the, what is the, the uh, why did this come about? And, and, and what is the validity of it? Well, I think it came about as a result of, it's sort of a retaking of Bertrand Russell's very, I think, interesting and to some extent valid um, thesis on why I'm not a Christian, although he tended to systematically ignore other aspects of, of religion. But it, it is more or less a reaction to the hysteria of 9-11. And that's why I believe it has caught on so strongly. And if you look at the books, they're focused on Islam and the particular dangers of Islam. As if the texts of a religion, and there's all sorts of... You know, these are some of them are very smart people who believe in this stuff. I mean, the new atheist stuff. But none of them uses science to any appreciable degree in their criticisms of religion. And let's give you an example. So, both Chris Hitchens and Dick Dawkins and um, Sam Harris and uh, Grayling and all these other people say, for example, that uh, the terrorists, the bombers, the suicide guys, <laughs> they are brainwashed in madrasas and that's what makes them crazy. Right? Well, no one, there was one guy who attacked the West that attended the madrasa for three weeks. This is all the attacks on the West. Okay, one guy. Brainwashing. I mean, brainwashing, give me a break. Brainwashing, does anybody know where brainwashing comes from, this idea? Well, it comes from the Korean War when about 10,000 um, Chinese prisoners, Chinese and Korean prisoners, didn't want to go back to China and Korea. But about 100 Brits and Americans wanted to stay in China and Korea. So the Chinese and, and the Koreans who didn't want to go back, they were choosing freedom. The others were brainwashed by these Pavlovian genius Chinese guys, and they made the Manchurian candidate, and everyone suddenly bought into this notion of brainwashing. But in fact, none of these guys who joined Al-Qaeda are brainwashed. They are almost all self-seekers. 
Al-Qaeda has no recruiting organization, never did. It was like the National Science Foundation or the European Research Council. You'd apply for funds, and about 15% of the people would be accepted. And that's the way the jihad happens. It's who your friends are, how they motivate one another, and again, it's almost entirely self-seeking. There's very little, in fact, no real command and control. But why do people uh, seek these things? Well, that's a completely story, but has very little to do with Islam itself. Now, go back to the notion I presented of these counterintuitive belief systems. Well, if the beliefs are empirically and logically absurd, as most of the core beliefs of all religions are, then you can't have a constant interpretation of it. I mean, people, one thing that fundamentalists share with the new atheist movement is they believe that there's a literal interpretation of these kinds of things. But we can show experimentally that no one really can possibly, can even conceive of these things literally. You can in a particular context and in a particular time. And that's why we have weekly sermons, for example, which change constantly. But you cannot have a fixed, literal interpretation of something that's semantically absurd. That's just impossible. Yet they believe they do. And they believe that they're brainwashed with these kinds of things and that education is going to convince them not to be brainwashed. Well, again, a little scientific study will show you that the plurality of people who join Al-Qaeda are college-trained engineers and medical doctors with the third factor, town planners. I don't know, urban town planners for some reason. Uh, but that you find generally with, with revolutionary movements in general. Why? Because revolutionary movements seek out those people who are most willing to show their willingness to commit to the future and delay immediate gratification, which is why you find in the course of the 20th century, for example, almost all leaders have medical education because they're willing to show that. Those are the kinds of people look for. And the same thing you, tr you find for Al-Qaeda or any of these other groups. And another interesting fact, since about 1950, revolutionary groups in general tend to beat out uh, state power with at least 10 times uh, an order of magnitude greater uh, military and material personnel power. And why do they beat out an order of magnitude greater uh, military and material power? It's because state power is usually premised on typical sort of rational actor reward structures. You advance in careers, you get better pay, but these groups are not. They're built on commitment to an idea. So they're willing not to discount the future. They're willing to make sacrifices, and as Darwin said, in the end, all things being equal, they're likely to win. Just a few more statistics. Actually, when you do a study of wars in human history over the last 3,500 years, here's just two studies. One is Philip, three-volume uh, by, by, by Axelrod uh, and Phillips, the Encyclopedia of Wars. 7%, about 123 out of 1,763, are religiously motivated. That is explicitly religiously motivated. The BBC War, Order, War Audit also did it on a scale of 1 to 5, over the last 3,500 years, the majority of all wars have no religious modification. Zero is like the Punic Wars between Carthage and Rome. Five would be like the Crusader Wars. And only 7% had a rating of three or more. So in terms of explicit, does religion cause war? Well, the answer is, you know, really no. But 
Oh, and also, as I, as I implied, the origins of humanity itself, and I work with sort of, I've worked with sort of small-scale sort of primitive tribes, and let me tell you, there's no real notion of humanity, of us as a species sharing everything. In fact, words like Bantu and Navajo, or most of the words, is basically we the people and the other people can be eaten and treated basically like animals. So where does this notion of humanity come from? Well, it came from this merging of sort of Greek and Judaic tradition, although the Buddhists also uh, had a sort of parallel mode. And the notion of humanity, we are all one species and should all be brought in, was created by these universal religions. And again, they've been propagated, that notion, by their secular manifestations, the it is isms I, would, uh, I talked about. And uh, 14th century historian Ibn Khaldun found that when you compare Muslim dynasties of equal power, those likely to survive longer are those that have a stronger religious feeling. Uh, studies with the diverse range of contemporary societies, foragers, farmers, herders, show that professing the world religion predicts greater fairness. And again, contemporary Islam spread into sub-Saharan Africa, as well as the evangelical movement is associated with these standard sort of religious aspects. So religion doesn't cause war, okay? Or a very, very few, small percentage of war. But it makes conflicts intractable. What happens in intractable conflicts? In intractable conflicts, things become sacralized. They become sacred. Land becomes holy land. Now, what does it mean to become sacred? It means that it is no longer in the realm of utilitarian calculations. It is no longer in the realm of risks and rewards. It is no longer in the realm of costs and benefits. And I'm sort of going to end with a fast go-through of what sacred values are. So the sacred values of society are usually not even recognized by people in their own society. Why? Because they determine the framework of, within which all material exchanges are possible. Now, an economist or a political scientist that's classically trained will tell you all things are fungible. But of course they're not. You will not exchange your child for 400 million coat hangers, assuming you can, because the benefits of having those, the money for 400 million coat hangers outweighs having your child. If someone offers you a million dollars for your child, you think they're crowley crazy. If they insist, you'll start getting angry. Again, if all things are fungible, that would make perfect sense. The difference between our societies and most other societies is we have a very disparate notion of what is sacred for us. Children happens to be universal because it's genetically based. So all our politicians and our shoe salesmen and our oil companies will sell whatever product they have promising that they'll do good for your children. Okay? But other societies have a more expansive or inclusive notion of what's common values. But let me tell you, we do have, although much of it is sort of subliminal, notions of what is sacred. So one of the experiments we do I do is I invite all my graduate students who are married into a room and I have a fake jeweler. It's a perception experiment, we say. And the jeweler looks at the ring and says, we'll give you $1,000 for this ring. If you leave it on the table, we'll make a perfect copy. And next week you get $1,000 and you choose which ring. And we can guarantee the same gold content. Well, except for people <coughs> getting a divorce. <laughs> and people from different cultures, like Pakistani women who for some reason, they don't care about rings, but their husband put a ring on them when they got married. They're willing to make, because their husbands won't know the difference, they're willing to make 
the exchange. But most people aren't. Well, I, I remember I presented this, and Danny Kahneman and George Lowenstein, these are two sort of decision-making guys, psychologists are in the audience, and they're, that's very interesting, that's very interesting. I think, and George goes, I got it, negative utility. Because you see, if your wife or your husband ever found out, <laughs> under anything, she'd bash you over the head, and that's why you don't do it, because in the back of you. So we did it with widows and widowers, and we had the same, <laughs> the same result. Another, another experiment we did was with real estate agents. So we, we had the real estate agent uh, accept an offer. A couple would come in and offer and say, we want to sell our house, and this is what we want. And the real estate agent would have them come back the next week, for example, and go, you know, you think you can lower the price because the people want to build a hospital for handicapped children. And people would systematically significantly lower the price. But when the real estate agent called them back in and said, you know, could you lower the price? We want to build a shopping center. The price went significantly up. Again, that makes no sense on the basis, really, of rational actor models. It makes sense on the feeling of who you are, your belief in, in, in who you are. We just did a series of studies where we show that we, we do a set of paradigms for neuroimaging, and we show that processing sacred values and processing utilitarian values occupy different parts of, their, of the brain. This was a special issue of the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society back in March. Um, so sacralized values take on the characteristics of religious values. They, they might not be religious to begin with. The nation, the notion of the nation, is very close to the notion of a religion. Think about it. It's got ceremonies, it's got sacred anthems, it's got all sorts of crazy ideas of why you should sacrifice and who you should sacrifice for. But we sacralize much more than just the nation. And when we do it, these things take on, they become emotionally charged and yet stable over time. They are associated with different neural processing rules. Am I going backwards? They're insensitive to quantity. That doesn't matter, for example, in the name of an idea, if you kill one or kill a thousand, or save one or save a thousand. They are the same, because you are doing something because it's appropriate, regardless of the consequences. It also nullifies what in cognitive psychology we call framing effects. There are no framing effects with sacred values. They have a very strong interpersonal component, and they're immune to trade-offs. And let me just give you an example of trade-offs. So we've done experiments in uh, several hotspots in the world. So what we usually do with my colleagues is I go there and I talk to the leaders. So I'll give you an example. We're talking to Aaron. So I went to Mr. Netanyahu and I asked him, well, what do you see the Middle East in 10 years? He gave a very interesting answer. And you can ask me about it afterwards. And I say, so if what do you want to know? If, 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 if you could talk to the head of Hamas, he goes, I don't want to talk to the head of Hamas. He can, he says, what, what, what would you ask him if he was here in front of you? So he said, I'll tell you what I would ask him. I don't care about anything else. Would the Hamas, under any circumstance, recognize the suffering of the Jewish people and their right to be here? That's the only thing I want to know. Territory, resources, water, anything, borders, that can be discussed down the future. 
Would they ever, under any conditions, ever recognize that? And that's the only answer I'm interested in. So we went to Damascus, and we talked to Mr. Mashal, and I said, here's what the Israeli Prime Minister says, and he said, uh-huh, we've been in jail for over 60 years, and now you want me to recognize the rights of my jailer? Let us out and we'll talk. So I asked, and so that wasn't going to get us any place with the Israelis, but I asked the uh, Hamas leadership what they want. And Mr. Mashal gave a very interesting answer. He said, will the Jewish people ever recognize, or the Israelis ever recognize, the suffering they have caused our people? Will they ever apologize? And then I said, supposing they did. Supposing the Israelis sincerely and unconditionally apologized for the dispossession and dislocation of Palestinian people in 1948, forget 1967, what would Hamas do? And Mashal said, peace with Israel would be possible. I don't say it will happen, but it would be possible. Now, people say to me, well, he's just blah, 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 blah. Look, I, I, cert I certainly don't think so, either for Netanyahu and blah, blah. Because Netanyahu insisted not only... I will know that they recognize our right when I see every anti-Semitic e expression expunged from their texts. Then I will know they mean what they say. So these are the things that really mean something to their leaders. So then what we do is we go out and we do random populations, of random samples of thousands of people, and find out if these kinds of concessions would lead the people themselves, of whatever political persuasion, to make a compromise. And I'll just give you, so we've, again, we've done this in all these places and many more. And I'll just give you an example. So we offer, and by the way, I went with someone from the White House who had just been in the White House, and we were offering material concessions. We started doing it within subject experiments with the leaders. We went to the Knesset, we went to Michal and the whole Politburo, Abu Marzouk and Hamdan and all this. And we started doing experiments with these guys. By the way, it's very easy to run experiments with soldiers and leaders. And um, they, we were offering them possibilities of material incentives, including the United States backing these peace deals. And the more material the disincentive or the incentive was, the more violent and angrier the people became. Okay? Again, this sort of runs in the opposite direction of what would be predicted by standard political and rational actor theory in economics. But if the other side believes that their adversary is willing to give a sincere show of respect or an apology, costs nothing, then opposition, even among the most hardcore radicals, decreases markedly. Violence and anger and su support of suicide bombing, for example, among the Palestinians decreased markedly. And willingness, for example, of the Gaza settlers to voluntarily withdraw increased markedly if the Palestinian people would recognize the right of the Jewish people to be there. So respect and recognition and apologies, again, which don't figure on any calculus of utility, seem to be absolutely critical. I have a friend who's a divorce lawyer, and he said, please, I know this, but don't <laughs> tell it to any of our clients, we would be out of business. <laughs> okay, uh, we've done it 
also recently in the nuclear program, we found that 13% of the people, we did this in all Iranian provinces, 13% of the people support the nuclear program, not a bomb, but the nuclear program. And they are the ones who are most religious and closest to the regime and who have sacralized this into a religious thing. The more incentives or disincentives, carrots or sticks, sanctions or rewards, the more violent, disgusted, angry, and willingness to go to war they become. And we find that every time the U.S. and U.N. ratchets up sanctions, the Iranian regime and those close to them either build a nuclear reaction or declare they've had this nuclear reaction going or augment their enrichment facilities. <coughs> the last time, they revealed that they had augmented from 4 to 20 percent in two reactors, just to show, basically, not only do we won't care, these are sacred to us. So this is just an example of the peace deals we would give, the U.S. and European Union, we give Palestine, $10 billion for 100 years, blah, blah, blah. And again, um, the more this indicates, the more people are willing to, the more the other side is willing to give a material incentive or disincentive, the more violence, anger, and distrust increases. But the more the people are willing, and the more joy people hear at suicide bombing, for example, but the more the people are willing to uh, make a symbolic concession, uh, the less likely they are to oppose a peace agreement. Okay, so whilst so what does this mean for political negotiations? What it means for political negotiations is almost all people in political negotiations and say the or business negotiations, this is say the political science department or the Kennedy School at Harvard or uh, the business school at Harvard or Stanford or anywhere else, learn that you should deal with small issues first and build slowly, especially concentrating on economic advantages to the other side. And what we find is intractable conflicts, this is almost guaranteed to further continue their intractability. Why? Because people see these steps as attempts to buy them off, to hedge them off. It's only by dealing with these huge, the huge issue, which is a non-material issue basically, that people are willing then to consider material transactions. And again, we do these experiments with leaders and we find that's particularly the case. Now here's the interesting thing. Each side believes their own side is morally motivated and that this is true for them. When we presented this stuff to the White House, at the White House at the National Security Council, Elliot Abrams, who was the Middle East guy in charge of the Middle East, he goes, you know you're right. You know you're right because Sharon said to me that if we had promised those Gaza settlers that they were the last Israeli pioneers and they were making a great sacrifice, we would have had no trouble with them. Instead, we said they were parasites on the state, costing us a lot of money, and we almost had a civil war. So people recognize it, at least after the fact, that these things motivate their own side. What they don't recognize is that the other side has any of these motivations, because people tend to treat the other side as pure consequentialists, okay, or evil. One of those two. So for example, if one of our guys kills somebody in Afghanistan, a whole bunch of villagers, then you find attempts to understand their psychology, their motivations, were they under stress, why did they break, how did they deviate from the ideals. But if someone from the outside attacks your society, there's no attempt whatsoever. So getting people to recognize the other side's values is very different. And then you need the additional step of trying to figure out which ones are compatible or incompatible. I should end here. Um, 
What I think we need and what we lack is a science of sacred values. As I said, I think this is what got us out of the caves and what led rides to civilization and is responsible for the most intractable uh, conflicts in the world today. And I'll just give you the example of the American Revolution. So in May 1776, there was a vote in the Continental Congress to split from England. Some consider that an unfortunate decision. But in any event, the people voted against splitting. Then what happens? Sam and John Adams, together with a few wealthy landowners, the Je Jefferson and Washington, for example, said, listen, we are going to give you an absolutely sacred right, the right of equality with propertyed land classes, the right to have one man vote regardless of whether you have property or not. And they convinced the propertyless artisans of Philadelphia, the guild of propertyless artisans of Philadelphia. They devoted, focused all their attention on that between May and July. <coughs> Philadelphia was the largest city in the colonies. Pennsylvania controlled the voting bloc for all the mid-Atlantic <coughs> colonies, including Maryland, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York. Once they convinced the guild of propertyless artisans about the sincerity of their sacred values, the vote tipped in Philadelphia and tipped in the whole thing, and uh, the United States was formed. Right after the United States, the Declaration of Independence, how does it begin? It begins with that crazy proposition about, you know, providence endows us with alienable rights. It ends with, we, are, we pledge our fortunes, our lives, and our sacred honor. And who pledged it? People who were well off. The United States, from the moment it was created, had the greatest standard of living in the world far outstripping illness. That is, the colonists of the United States had a better standard of living than England. They didn't need the money. England sent 30,000 troops and the largest armada of the 18th century against New York Harbor, which only had 20,000 people. Every battle was lost for the first six months. And then what did Washington do as the recruitment was up in December of 1776 and everyone was about to go home? There are eyewitness accounts. Washington literally got up on his horse and said, we have the ability to change history for a sacred right. And he convinced his troops. And so the United States was born and uh, the world changed to an extreme degree. I think that similar things can happen. Again, I don't think there's been any intelligent look into how these kinds of values either form or can resolve conflicts. And I'm hoping especially the young people will pay a little more attention. Thank you. For a fantastic talk, Scott, and also for pointing out the existence of a funding agency that we hadn't uh, thought of approaching, Al Qaeda. Um, <laughs> we they're having bad they have bad times now. Maybe uh, at some future date. Um, we don't have very much time for questions. We did start a little late, so I'll take a few short questions. Uh, Andrew, yes, very interesting idea of the science of the sacred. Of course. Science derives partly from the old term scientia, and scientia is about a rational syllogistic analysis. As you said yourself during your talk, religion often doesn't just deal with those sorts of things. Um, the, the term you used was absurdity, I, but I would use the term uh, right-brain cognition. A lot, of, a lot of religion deals with metaphors, narratives, um, embodied experiences, and so on. So I think, uh, well, I agree partly with where you divide up the territory, 
but I, I reject the term absurdity. Most of the time we're dealing with religion uh, in terms of a different kind of cognitive faculty. So the danger of a science of the sacred, you might use the wrong tools and miss the interesting stuff. Oh. Should I respond? Yeah, absolutely. Well, absurdity is, is actually religious worries that people like Hobbes used it, and so did Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard was arguing, who was a very religious person, that it was precisely the strength of the preposterous that gave it its, its ability to unite people uh, in a common cause. Can you study it scientifically? Well, yeah, I, I think we have, we're doing it. And what it sh here, here, here's the thing. You cannot simply wish away. So, so supposing you're, you're, say, of the new atheist persuasion, and you believe that you can educate people not to be religious, and you can sort of say, say how stupid and false the beliefs are, where in fact, they're, if they're literally absurd, falsity and truth, the truth doesn't even come into the picture. What can you do? You can show how the apparent irrationality of these things actually work on human minds and on human body politics. And then you can use that, I believe, to leverage things like conflict resolution. So I think science really can get a handle, and is beginning only for the first time in history, to begin to look at religious seriously, because there was this complete separation. And it is giving us a handle on what are those focused aspects you can use to um, increase the possibilities of conflict resolution, or in understanding why conflicts tend to be get out of control. So I think there hasn't been any science of religion really to speak of, except in these sort of gross things. There is now starting to be one, and I think we should give it a chance. Okay, uh, question up here. Fascinating lecture. Um, um, I, I take many of your points on board, but I just want to challenge a few or perhaps condition some of them. Um, you mentioned that um, uh, Netanyahu and Michelle are, spe are uh, speaking to sacred points um, and not necessarily rational. But I, I, would, I would suggest that perhaps those are perfectly rational and that what they're asking for is a paradigm shift. You've said it yourself, many people have said it this morning already, that uh, regarding others as, as others versus us. And once they hear that sympathy, it, it is actually rational, it's perfectly rational then to change one's attitude and then everything does change. On, on the other side, I would say that actually these sides would respond very heavily to serious material incentives, not token incentives as you were mentioning, because perhaps are a bit of a straw man, but uh, borders on one side, disarmament on the other, then I think they would very seriously respond to those. Yeah, but the thing is, first of all, you can't, you can't even make those kinds of concessions anymore. They're, out of, they're off the table. How do you even make those things possible? And I think the only way you can even make talk of border possible still is to deal with these issues. Now, that might not have been the case in 1948, even in 1967, but I believe it certainly is now. And it's why all of a sudden you're seeing the resurgence of sort of religious-type ideologies, both among the Palestinians and among, among the Israelis, much more sacralization of the issues than there was before throughout the majority of the population. They're considered fairly holy. Um, material, material, material incentives. Well, in general, again, once things become intractable, I think we show quite clearly that material incentives don't really help. We just can't get them to kick off. And I'll just give another example. So when we met with Netanyahu and General Amidur, his national security advisor, 
they were complaining about why the Palestinians weren't taking advantage of the fact that the Israelis were offering them all these economic incentives to try to build trust. And then we went to the Palestinians, and everybody, I'm talking about from Abbas and Fayyad, Fayyad is an economist trained at the University of Texas, a very, very rational guy, very devoted to nonviolence. They all responded in unison, whether it's Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which would never accept Israel, or Fayyad, who's ready to accept Israel tomorrow. We cannot deal with this until the Israelis recognize our people for who they are, some way. Now, Fayyad wasn't specific. He believes the greatest mistake is the Israelis didn't declare themselves ready to recognize a state. While Hamas, their greatest thing was the Israelis never apologized for what they did to us. So I think these, these kinds of things are truly, truly deep. Okay, we've got five minutes and five questions, uh, so let's be as quick as possible see so how we can get through Jacques. Scott, thanks very much for that fascinating talk. And I'll stick to one question, given our time. If, if religion doesn't cause wars, what's your take on, on its role on buttressing other kinds of nonsense or evil? So I come from Africa, and there are two examples in Nigeria. We have regular reports of witches being burned, of witches being killed uh, for religious motivated reasons. And in South, South Africa, my own country, we have corrected rapes uh, due to homophobia, which is also premised on religious beliefs. So even if we're not having wars, I'd like to see things cease. And that seems to yeah, uh, tie into the motivation of, of, of diminishing religious beliefs more generally. See, I don't, I don't think there's any the slightest, the slightest uh, evidence whatsoever that diminishing religious beliefs diminishes this kind of discrimination. Because people will find other kinds of reasons. I mean, look at the 20th century, for example. Look at the crazy ideologies which were supposedly scientifically based, namely Stalinist ideology. I mean, he, he had a whole coterie of scientists he believed were science, Or the Nazi regime, which Rudolf Hess said, this is just applied biology. You know, crazy ideas of, of science. But they truly believed it. I mean, they were absolutely convinced that science told them this was the way to act. So... Human beings, when they form groups and they, when they deal with other groups, will always do it on the basis, I think, ultimately, of transcendent notions. Now, the question, do they have a supernatural component or are they purely ideological component that has no super... I think that's almost irrelevant. The question is, can we somehow <clears throat> either introduce rationality, and I don't think in matters of existential struggles rationality will get us very far. I don't think we're built for it. Or can we come up with some kind of transcendental beliefs that will allow a more peaceful resolution of an apparent dispute? And so I think that the study, the scientific study of relief, rather than attempts to get rid of it, uh, are more likely to lead to that okay. happier conclusion. S sitting next to Jack. Okay. Um, so I think a point, I think it's really important that um, we have to understand people's feelings, um, like really, which was that quite earlier talk. Things I respect or your religion, but I'm just a bit confused about earlier when your um your talk really was um like very critical of religious beliefs um in, in quite a like negative way. So I mean and also your comments about um Nazi view of science, also like this counting as irrational. But it but then aren't you just um saying that your belief or people who believe what you believe is right and that everyone else is a rational wrong, like wouldn't it work better if you say that um, if people have different beliefs and people reach a 
rational, like it's completely rational what they believe. Um, and then you respect him, like you argue to the end. Other people, and also if you limit religion to narrow um, scientific boundaries, you're going to misunderstand a lot of things about religion. Okay. Um, science, science can only deal with what science can deal with. It can't deal with deeper existential notions of what religion does for people. I mean, it can, it can study aspects of what it does, but it can't do for people what religions can, right? I mean, human beings, from a scientific point of view, are incidental <coughs> elements of, of the universe. If a Martian god decided to neglect any mention of human beings and its planet in the universe, it would be a trivial oversight. But for religions, human beings and their place in the universe are, are essential, right? Central. Well, you don't have to call it religion and science. You can call it X and Y. So let's take Y. And Y's job is to give a logically coherent, empirically valid description of X. And I think it can do that. X doesn't do that. X does something else. And that's all I'm saying. Okay. Uh, over here. Um, so you said at the beginning that you like to summarize everyone else's talks when you get to the end. Um, and there was an interesting kind of counterplay between the only other talk that we've heard, which was that it began with religious conflicts that involve people who aren't very religious, you know, 30% of Israelis. And you also mentioned the idea that sacredness is very uh, emotionally charged. And I just wondered if maybe you'd like to address what seems like a, a conflict between your two talks, but actually I think there, are, there seems like there's a lot of overlap between what you're talking about, the new science and the sacred. Yes, I just proposed to Aaron that we should work together. <laughs> yes, Aaron works sort of from the bottom up. He tries to understand how you can overcome psychological boundaries and reduce psychological distances through manipulations like criticism or empathy or uh, apologies and respect. Um, I also deal with that, but I, as I said, I'm, I'm older than he is, and I have less time, less time in this world. And I think dealing with leaders and trying to get leaders to move opinion uh, presents a whole other set of problems. I, I don't think many of the things Aaron talked about can be easily put into practice with leaderships. So what we're going to try to figure out is how we can work together. Okay, uh, Julian. Well, I think I know what the answer to this is going to be, but... Just construing religion very broadly to include things like communism and Stalinism and Nazism, you, you suggested, and it seems to me absolutely correct, that, that societies that have this kind of religious orientation are going to outcompete and have outcompeted those which don't have that. But do, do you think that's necessarily the case? So rather than harnessing this sort of sacralisation for some useful purpose, do you think you could reduce kind of tendencies and still be a competitive society. So I'm thinking in some ways the best example may have been a number of years ago these Scandinavian societies that had they, they, they were committed to equality and had a kind of quasi-religious attachment right. to social equality but it, you know, it was quite benign in that sense and other than that they, they, they didn't have strong features of, of sacralisation in the sense that say you know, the fundamentalist Christians in the US have. Right. So, you know, is that sort of society doomed to failure or, or are there ways in which we, rather than shifting sacralisation, we could actually reduce it? It's hard to tell. I mean, they've been sort of very minor players on the world stage and, in fact, spiritualism, not Christianity, not institutional Christianity, but spiritualism, especially Islam and sort of strange forms of spiritualism, new agey stuff is 
rapidly on the crease, actually. No, I think like they've failed now. I think no, Islam is... No, no, sorry, increased. I think the Scandinavian society have failed, so I think you're right. Ha- yeah. That sort of experiment seems to... If you look at countries that have been, uh, or nations that have been um, aggressively atheist, uh, like the Soviet Union, as an example, you find that religion not only has come back, but is now equal to the United States. That is, 6% of the people of Russia now claim not to have a spiritual orientation, which is about the same. And very few would ever vote for a, less 3% would ever vote for an atheist as head of the the former Soviet Union. Uh, I was um, invited by the uh, government, with Dan Bennett, the Chinese Commission on Atheism. We actually have a government commission on atheism. And our job was to try to convince government functionaries precisely that religion was on the way out and that everybody was going to be happier and China was the model, everybody was going to be happier. And although I, I told them that was a crazy idea, I mean, it was going to, everybody applauded. You know, I don't think they understood a word I said. I don't think they even <laughs> understood English. <laughs> that didn't matter. I think that actually, if you look at Chinese society, you'll find a, a, a rise in spiritualism. It's very interesting. Andre Malraux, who was living at sort of the heyday of secular ideologies and who was sort of dominated them all, anti-communist, anti-fascist, and he made a statement that was very curious. I'm not much for predicting history. I think it's a little less valuable than astrology. But this particular insight, I think, was, was very interesting. He said, secular ideologies are playing themselves out. We don't see any new secular ideologies. So what's left? Well, the only thing humans have come up with so far are religious things. So he said the 21st century will either be religious or it just won't be. And I think he's right. And let me just make that one last point relative to your introductory remarks, where you talk about the pessimism you felt, or Martin Rees and others like you felt about the human race. So Steve Pinker has recently written a very big book called The Better Angels of Our Nature after Lincoln's statement. And he shows over the last 10,000 years that interpersonal violence has declined markedly and continues to decline. And he makes the claim that the reason that has happened is that human beings have gradually become more interconnected, more empathetic, and more reasonable. And that reason, empathy, and interconnectedness have led this to the reduction of violence, and we are now in the least violent epoch of our age. Okay. So here's my two-minute response to this, because I think it's important for where we take this whole research paradigm. If you look at wars from about 1450 to 1945, you find what's called a power law distribution. That means wars become increasingly less frequent, big wars. Each interval becomes about three times bigger. And an order of magnitude increasingly more destructive. So less frequent and more destructive. Okay, it's called a fat tail distribution. Now, since 1940, and they have much more cascading economic and political and social consequences across the entire world, where previous wars were much more restricted. Now, the argument is that since 1945, we've had no big wars. Okay, and so all of a sudden, this parallel distribution has intersected with this decline in personal violence, and the conclusion of the book is, well, the two curves have met because empathy, interconnectedness, and reason now dominate the earth. And I, my feeling is the reason, the only reason that the two things intersected is because we lucked out in not destroying the human race 
back in 1962 or something very closely. The risk, when, when you have a catastrophic event, like a nuclear war, which is different than all previous wars, you know, one bomb, one city, ten bombs, that's the end of everything. When you have a catastrophic event, you cannot deal only with the frequency of actual occurrences of events. You have to deal with the risk or expectation of an occurrence. The estimated risk, I know this because my father happened to be in the defense industry at the time, and also interviewed Dean Rusk. The estimated risk of a nuclear war was between 20 and 33 percent in October 26, 1962. So if you plot that on the parallel distribution, it keeps following the distribution. Now, we still haven't had a nuclear war. One reason is the collapse of the Soviet Union, which had 20,000 nuclear weapons, and they're gone. But what we do have are countries like Pakistan and India. India is introducing a new submarine fleet of nuclear weapons. Pakistan has built two plutonium reactors and are producing more enriched uranium at um, bomb levels than all the other nations of the world. And they have come to very close to war twice. Iran is ratcheting up the enrichment of their program. Now, when I ask the Israeli leadership, are they worried if Iran will, will attack Israel? No, not at all. They are worried, and we have subsequently confirmed, that the moment the Iranians detonate, the Saudis and the Egyptians and the Turks will go into a full-fledged nuclear program, which means the most unstable region in the world will then have nuclear weapons. That's why I'm sort of on the pessimistic side. Okay, I'm going to take one very quick question from Joanna. Okay, so um, I, it's often illuminating to try to test social and psychological theories um, and their plausibility by seeing whether they, whether we feel like they could really explain our own first personal experience. And so I'm wondering whether you've sort of taken your account of the sacred values and the sort of irrationality and absurdity and uh, the cost aspect. And sort of probe whether they help explain your own sort of values that are sort of as close as you come to sort of sacred values, so your ethical commitments. Um, sure. So have you, <laughs> have you sort of road tested them by sort of thinking about the first personal perspective? Yeah, I mean, I ask myself, for example, why am I interested in human rights and, or civil rights, and why do I think that the, the sort of democratic liberal tradition in politics is the happiest one if there were, uh, of course, hedged by notions that if there were less wars of choice, there would be a much happier uh, conclusion to everything. And the ultimate answer is, I think it gives uh, a meaning in life. It gives a possibility of people realizing their lives <coughs> that aren't um, there in other systems. I mean, the, the broadest number of people, it's almost a utilitarian uh, stance. But the deepest feeling is I think that people uh, can realize what they want to be. And so that's what I look for in my own ideology. But that sounds like a very different set of reasons for you to adopt that ideology compared to what you've said as the reasons for people that people have that they adopt religious views or sacred values. No, I mean, I think people adopt religious things. Uh, let me my own personal life. So when I went to the Bush White House, I would go quite frequently because I was working with Al Qaeda guys, and I would come with information. And the National Security Advisors. Uh, would listen to me, and they they talk about their own sacred values, and that the other guys are just evil nihilist rotten rat finks, and have to be exterminated. And then, and they said, and then well, I never forget one of them 
took out his Blackberry and said, you know, even if we did believe in all this stuff and we could get through on sacred values, I have nothing on my Blackberry for the last five minutes that said we have to devote our time to sacred values. Maybe you'll have better luck with Congress. I'm serious. This is exactly <laughs> what they said. When they left the White House, they all came to us and wanted to build a program. And now we actually have a sort of company formed by former Bush Protestant evangelical fundamentalists working in national security with us trying to implement sacred value stuff. And they ask him, why couldn't they do it at that time? Political constraints. Why do they now? Because in their hearts they believe it's true. So political constraints can, strump, can trump what's in your heart. And I think that, that often happens. But if you ask questions about what's in your heart, try it with any political leader, you will get a much stronger personal and I think valid response than you get otherwise. Okay, uh, thanks uh, again, Scott. Fantastic. <laughs>